Well, it's kind of fun getting to see the kids out and about waving, waving uh, palm branches. They didn't give me one this year. Apparently, I didn't use it correctly last year, so they, they cut me off. But, you know, I hope, I hope and pray for us this week that this would not be just any other week in our year, that, that this would be a year where our emotions and our minds and our hearts are stirred, that we might think on the, on the, the celebration that we are about to partake in as a, a church, as a community of faith. You know, we, we see those kids going around, and it's, it, it reminds us, it, it gives us a depiction of that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and not only was that a fulfillment of Scripture, but it was a time of great celebration for the people of God because they were anticipating this great Savior and that the Savior had come. But you and I know that that week didn't unfold the way they probably thought it would in their minds. And so I just, I want to encourage us as we go into this week to not let Monday come and Monday go, Tuesday come and Tuesday go, Wednesday come and Wednesday go. I, I don't want us to let the days of the week go by without us thinking on the significance of this week. The fact that we have much reason to celebrate and to praise God and, and, and give him thanks because we have a king who is worthy of accomplishing all that he's accomplished and gathering us together as his church and bringing us salvation through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And so, uh, you know, I I know how easy it is to get caught up in the rhythm and routine of life and for things to pass us by. But if I could just encourage, as as we're reminded seeing the kids come by and the celebration that they remind us of, don't let the celebration of this week pass us by without thinking on the significance of this week for the rest of our church year and church calendar together. Well, we'll probably touch on that a little bit this morning, but, but what I want to do is I want us to shift our attention back to the Ten Commandments, because today we're going to wrap up our study of the Ten Commandments. We're actually going to look at the Tenth Commandment together that Moses shares with Israel when he comes down from Mount Sinai and shares the Decalogue with them. But, but before we cover this final commandment, I want to remind us all of the reason why these commandments are so important. The reasons why they, they matter. There's so much more than just a list of do's and don'ts. So you, you probably need to remember that when God gave these Ten Commandments to Israel, they had just escaped 400 years of living as slaves in Egypt. Let that sink in a little bit. Because who they were and who they knew themselves to be had been shaped by 400 years living under the persecution of the Egyptians. They were not the Israelites. They were slaves to the Egyptians. In their minds, they could not help but know themselves based on how they were treated by their oppressors, by the Egyptians. And so now, they have just been rescued from slavery. They stand in the wilderness. They stand before this mountain where God has revealed himself to Moses and gives him the law. And now something special is going to happen. Because now where they stood, they were preparing to enter the land that God had promised to give them a long time ago, way before they were slaves in Egypt. When, when God had said that, that he would bless Abraham and make him a blessing to the nations, where he would make him the father of many nations, right? But before God could bring them into this promised land, the land that he had given them, God had to do something. He, he, he wanted to prepare his people to live in that land. 
He didn't just want to transplant them from being slaves in Egypt to all of a sudden being in this new beautiful land, not knowing what to do with it. God wanted to equip and prepare his people to enter into this beautiful land that he was giving them and providing for them in. And so uh, before they would enter into the land, God had to prepare them to live in that land. And the law, the law that God gives his people was meant to prepare the people for the land. It was meant to, to transform them, to make them into something wholly different than the nations around them, right? When they, when they became a people who lived according to the law of God, their lives were transformed by that law. Again, it wasn't God saying, don't touch this, don't touch that, do this, don't do that. It was God saying, I want to shape your heart and your mind. I want to I give you a new identity. I want you to understand who you are as my children, as my people. And so the law was meant to make them wholly different from the nations around them. And from the, the Ten Commandments, we can see that, that Israel was to learn what it meant then to, to worship and serve one God and one God only, right? They, they were to learn to, to not bow down to the idols, these, these false and, and, and man-made idols of the land like, like the other nations did. They were to learn who God is as one worthy of honor and respect. You, you know, you think living under a pharaoh living under their, their oppressors who, 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 who just heaped more work on their shoulders when, when the work needed to be done, do you think that they felt uh, respect for those, those slave drivers? No. They had to learn what it meant to live under the, 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 the loving hand of a God and a king who, who cared for them and what it meant to, to be able to honor and respect that king. And so they were to learn who God is as one worthy of honor and respect. They were to learn what it means to, to trust God and, and to stop working for 24 hours, to, to learn that God provides all that they need. And in those 24 hours, he even provides rest for them. He provides health for their soul, for their inward being, when they can learn to, to stop, to cease, and to rest in God's presence. The law taught the people of God what God's plan was for families and, and, and to respect the responsibility that he gives to, to mothers and fathers as, as representatives among the family unit. The law taught them a, a new respect for the, the value of life, to hold faithful the covenant of marriage as, as a reflection of our covenant and our relationship with God. The law taught them to value the responsibility of, of stewardship in owning personal property and also to respect the personal property of others around us. It taught them to be truth tellers, to stand up for the truth and to, and, and to pursue honesty among the people. And, and finally, it, the law taught them what it means to not covet. The law prepared the people of God to live in this land that God was giving them. A land they couldn't, I, I wonder, I don't think that they could fully imagine and understand where God was leading them. And so this time in the wilderness under the law of God was meant to prepare them. And so when Moses records the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy, he includes these words, words of warning to the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 33, Listen to what Moses says. He says, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, right? You, you walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that may go well with you. You may live long in the land that you shall possess. And I hope, 
over these past 10 weeks that you've been able to see that more than a list of do's and don'ts, the law is a, is a blueprint for how we're to live in the kingdom of God. It's a plan. It's a rich plan where, where, where God invites us to, to trust him and to experience him as a loving king, a providing king, a caring king, who invites us to trust him and follow him. And in that, we have life. We have life abundantly, as Jesus talks about in the New Testament. So I hope that as we, as we wrap up these Ten Commandments, that, that God might continue to stir in you a desire to live more faithfully and obediently to God's law, to the, to the life that he invites us into. The, the law is not meant to be uh, stiff and, and, and challenging and, and, and restrictive. It's actually an invitation into the freedom of the kingdom that God has established for his people. So this morning, let's, let's turn our attention to the 10th and final commandment in our series found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Let me, let me read it for you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkeys or anything that is your neighbor's. Heavenly Father, we again give you thanks for your law. And Lord, I, I know that uh, in a day and age where independence and autonomy is celebrated and desired, uh, Lord, I pray that you would teach us submission and obedience, that we might learn what kind of God you are, a loving God, a gracious God, a wise God, and so, Lord, even this morning as we think about the responsibility you call us to in not coveting, give us wisdom here, we pray. Have your way among us as we sang a few moments ago. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his, his female servant, his ox, his donkey. Don't covet, really, anything that's not yours. In, in other words, don't desire what God hasn't given you, right? The 10th commandment is a prohibition against coveting something that someone else in the community already has, right? That thing that you desire, if God has already given it to someone else, you're not meant to desire that, right? This, is a, uh, this commandment's a close cousin to the 8th commandment, in which God prohibits stealing, right? We're, we're, we're called to kind of respect the boundaries of personal belonging and, and trust that God has given those things to that person, those gifts, those abilities, those resources for a purpose. And so I shouldn't take what's not mine. I should trust God in his wisdom that he gave those things to that person for a purpose and he's given me the things that I have for a purpose and he'll continue to provide for me in my life. The 10th commandment is, is uh, as the Puritan pastor Thomas Watson said, this insatiable, or prohibition against this insatiable desire of getting the world, right? It's looking at the world around you and saying, I want that. I wish I had that. Man, wouldn't it be great if, I, if that was true in my life? It's looking at the world and wanting more of what's out there and not caring or, or not, 
not, not being content in what is right here in front of you, what God has placed in your life. And so as we've seen with the previous commandments, the context that God's putting boundaries on in the 10th commandment is both for our vertical relationship with God, but also in our horizontal relationships within the community of faith. This is not a commandment that guides how we deal with people outside the faith community, how we deal with people who aren't yet in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is a commandment that puts boundaries and guardrails on our relationships within the community of faith and also our relationship with God. See, when we, when we covet our, our neighbor for the things he has or she has, we're engaging in two hurtful and damaging and unhelpful, unhelpful ways of thinking. One, we're telling God that, that, that he's, he's not enough. We're telling God that, that he's not a great provider of what we think we need. He's not a great provider of what we believe we deserve. And, and essentially, we're failing to trust God. We're, we're failing to trust God as being wise and knowledgeable in, in knowing what our future is to be, where he's leading us. And, and, and we're failing to trust that he's going to get us there with whatever is good and purposeful and useful that we need. And two, the, the second hurtful and, and damaging way of thinking through this, uh, that, that the 10th commandment is prohibiting is that we're allowing lies and untruths and selfishness and greed into our heart. And the fruit of that is destructive to the relationships we share with people in the community of faith. James makes the point in our Bibles that the cause of fights and quarrels among us is our unchecked desires. You have a disagreement with someone, you're hurt, uh, someone has hurt you or you've hurt someone else, you, you're, 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 you're jealous of something they have, guess what? It all comes back to the root of the matter, which is our own unchecked desires. We want something, but we don't get it, and so we take matters into our own hands, which leads to quarreling and fighting and, and ultimately hurting one another. Coveting our neighbors leads to the opposite of loving our neighbors. So whether it's a house or a wife or a servant, an ox, a donkey, a field, whatever it is, what truly makes it off limits for us, what truly makes it, uh, uh, what God is prohibiting us from longing for and desiring is the fact that God has already given that thing to someone else. God doesn't tell us that we are not to be a people who long for and desire. There are many examples in our Bible where God invites us to, to desire what is good and right. But what the 10th commandment prohibits is us desiring that which God has already given to someone else. But, the, but there's something else that's, that's very special about this 10th and final commandment. Namely, that it focuses first and foremost on our attitude and not our actions. The other commandments begin with actions like don't murder, or don't, don't steal, or don't worship idols, right? All actions that God prohibits us from doing because it will hurt us and will hinder us from being transformed as children of God. But this commandment gets right to the heart of the matter. It begins with the fact that we are a created soul before God, and he cares deeply that, that, that our hearts would be right before him. 
And so coveting something is desiring something. And when we desire something, the desire comes from the very core of our being. This is not just like, man, I, I wish I had a Snickers right now, right? This is talking about something deeper, more meaningful, something that matters, right? There, there's a popular statement that, that was first coined by Emily Dickinson, in which she, she wrote to a friend and said, hey, the heart wants what the heart wants, right? When she wrote this, her friend was struggling. Her friend was, was struggling with missing her husband who was about to go on a trip and would be gone for a very long time. And, and, and her friend was anxious, was, was sad, was, was grieving the fact that her husband was going to be gone for so long. And, and Dickinson realized something. She realized that there really wasn't any word or encouragement or, or, or piece of wisdom that she could give her friend that would make the pain of missing her husband go away. The point that her letter makes to her friend reminds us that not all of our longings and our desires are controlled by logic and reason. Right? The 10th commandment gets at the, the fact that it's not just right thinking that matters within the kingdom of God. It matters the posture of our heart, what our hearts long for and desire, what, what, we, what we want for ourselves and for others. In fact, our desires and longings have a lot more power and influence in our lives than I think we sometimes admit. This is what Jesus is, is getting after in, in Matthew's gospel when he's gathered his disciples around him and he's preaching a sermon to him and he tells them, hey guys, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In, in other words, what you treasure and matters most to you, that's where your heart will truly be. Your heart will pursue those things. Your soul will desire them. It will impact the decisions you make, the, the, the course you live, the values that you live by, the direction toward which you live your lives. So God's concern for and his, his commandment against coveting is more than just setting boundaries on our personal items and, and, and belongings in the community of faith. The 10th commandment recognizes a very real danger, namely that the heart is a very powerful driving force in our lives. In writing to the church in Rome, Paul's descri describing the, the fallout and the dangers of these unchecked desires in our lives. The, these desires that have been allowed to be a greater influence over our lives than we'd like to admit, than we'd, we'd like to believe. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells the believers in verse 24 and 25, he says, Therefore God gave them, those who essentially rejected the gospel of God, he gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator rather than the creature, who is blessed forever. Amen. <laughs> All right, well, good. You know, that was the, you guys are listening. You guys passed the first test. I'm going to do that again, so you better pay attention. <laughs> he gave, he, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen? Amen. There it is. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was the lusts of their heart, right? Guys, it, it was, it, they, these people were being driven 
by the, the desires of their heart. It was the desires of their heart that shaped the value toward which they lived their life, the direction toward which they lived their life. And what God realized was these people, they, they, they don't love me. They won't trust me. They don't want to follow me. The heart wants what the heart wants, and they're going to pursue that, and their heart doesn't want me. And so God gave them up. He let them go where they were determined to go. And this was such a dangerous thing in their lives. Church, God, God is concerned about his people. He doesn't want that for us. The 10th commandment reminds, it shows us God's heart for his people is he doesn't want to give people up to the desires of their hearts, to the lusts of their hearts. God desires to encourage and shape and form a people who long for the life that he is offering them, who are willing to trust him and go with him, who are willing to say, my heart, I want my heart to desire what God desires for me, right? It, it, and so coveting, coveting is like a gateway into a life of sin and death and despair. If you would imagine what coveting might look like on a journey, it's not like a road sign that tells you to stop or be careful and caution or, 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 or Fairfield is, is down this road for 15 miles. It's not even a guardrail to kind of keep you on the straight and narrow path. Coveting works more like a gate into a much more treacherous pathway that's wrought with danger. Think back for a moment to the beginning of our Bibles after God creates Adam and Eve, right? You, you remember the story where God creates them, he, he, he offers them everything that's within the garden, but he says, except for this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of the garden, right? And, and so shortly after God creates Adam and Eve and, and plants them in the garden, where all they actually need is theirs, all they could have actually wanted and needed was theirs if they just walked with God and trusted him for it. Now, that should have been a picture of perfect contentment, right? That should have been a picture of complete rest. There, there, there was no worry. There was no concern. There was no anxiety over getting the day's work done so they could eat and rest that night. There was no, no, no striving and struggling in the garden. And so it should have been the perfect picture of contentment. But do you remember what happens when, when Satan approaches Eve where, where he tempts her and he says, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of that tree? Right? When, 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 when Satan kind of says to her, God just doesn't want you to, to know good and evil like he does. He doesn't want you to be like him, right? You remember what, what Eve does? Listen to what happens after Satan convinces her that, that maybe there was more for her than what God had already provided. That maybe she was missing out. Listen to what we read in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Desire for what was not theirs crept into their hearts and minds. And desire gave birth to sin and sin to death. And so Eve took the fruit to gain something that she was never intended to have, the knowledge of good and evil. But, but, but not only, this is what I want us to understand in terms of thing of, of, of coveting as a gateway, not only did they disobey God in eating the fruit, their disobedience led to further disobedience. 
And, it, and so it continues beyond just the initial act of eating the fruit. For the first time in their life, they're aware of their nakedness, and the Bible says they're ashamed. And so what do they do? They hide. Essentially, hiding is lying. It's saying, you know, God can't find me where I, where, here, so I'm going to hide from him, right? And so they essentially try to lie to God about their whereabouts. And so when God asks them what happened, what does Adam do? Does he say, oh, I'm so sorry, God, we disobeyed you. No. He says, you know what, God? That woman who you gave to me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. Right? He tries to justify his actions. He tries, to, he tries again, lies and deceit. He, he tells a half-truth. See, coveting is a gateway into further darkness, despair, and problems. You may think, like, it's just, a, it's just an encouragement for God, for his people, to, to not, you know, compare ourselves to the people around us or desire what they want. But God's concerned about way more than just protecting you from the dangers of comparison. Someone who, who decides to, to steal or murder or commit adultery... They don't just wake up one day and, and, and decide to do these things. They'll say, hey, today's a good day to murder. No, these are decisions to act that have been brewing in their heart and mind, right? These, have, the, these thoughts, these ideas have been, have been percolating inside of them for a while. And how do they get there? Because we give space to coveting in our lives. Consider the story of Cain and Abel. The Bible doesn't tell us that the brothers just hated each other and so Cain kills Abel. Instead, the Bible tells us of a jealousy that, that's there because Cain was frustrated that, that God showed Abel favor in the offering that he brought before him. See, Cain, Cain coveted Abel's relationship with God. And we see that, the, the, the seed planted in the jealousy and the desire in, the, in his New Testament letter, James describes this subtle yet destructive progress of sin in our lives that begins with desire. In James chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, we read this. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the death that James is talking about here is our own. It's our own death when we're lured and enticed by our own desires. But the spiritual death we experience never stops there. It's never, my sin is never just my sin. It's nasty, it's messy, it spills over into the lives of others within the faith community. My jealousy, my anger, my pride is never just my sin to struggle with. It spills over and hurts others within the community of faith as well. And so coveting what's not ours to desire is the gate through which we walk a further path of sin and darkness and destruction. I mean, the, the Bible has plenty of examples Take a look, for example, at King David's life. I mean, that's a, the famous example of when, he, when he, he observes Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bathing on top of the house. And what does he do? He, he wants to get to know this woman, right? So what does he do? He sends for her. 
And then sending for and meeting her in person leads to more. And then they commit adultery together. And then she's pregnant. And so, in, in effect, to, to cover up their sin, they come up with a, a lie, a story. They say, Let, let's bring Uriah back. Maybe, maybe we, can, we, we can convince him that the child is actually his. But when that doesn't work, they step up their game. It's no longer just a matter of, of, of breaking the covenant of marriage. It's no longer just a matter of, uh, of telling of, uh, lies. But now, it's a matter of murder. Because the plot that they concoct is one where they say, hey, you know what? I'm going to put Uriah at the front of the, of, the, of the army. And in the fiercest point of the battle, I'm going to withdraw the troops so that he's left to defend himself. And that's a death sentence. And so Uriah is killed. And all of this, because David not just glanced, David looked at and desired Bathsheba. There's a significant gateway. You may think that in that example, it's an innocent glance. It is not an innocent glance. History shows that it's not an innocent glance. Coveting what is not yours is a gateway through further darkness and despair and pain. Or think about Jesus' final week of ministry before he's crucified. We had the kids walking through the sanctuary this morning. They're depicting that scene when Jesus rides in on the donkey into Jerusalem, and all the people are praising and, and celebrating. Why? Because they thought he was going to be their savior. He thought he, that he was going to save the day. But what they desired in their mind was a savior from political oppression by the Romans. And so they pictured that, that this was Jesus declaring victory over the Romans— and setting the, the Israelites free from, from kind of living under the Romans' oppression, right? And so they're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then just a few days later, what are they shouting? Away with this man. Release to us the murderer, Barabbas. When given the opportunity to set Jesus free because Pilate could find no guilt in him, these people are so, so set on crucifying Jesus that they're, they're saying, you know what, let's actually, we, we want to we pardon, we want to release Barabbas. We know he's guilty of murder. We know he's actually a murderer, but we'd love for you to let him go because we want to see Jesus crucified. I would propose to you that what's at work in their hearts and minds that week, and, and even before that week, was the wrong desire a desire for, for a political savior that was different from what God had promised to give them. God had promised to give them a savior. God had promised a Messiah long ago, but the Messiah that he had promised was not the Messiah that they wanted. And where does it lead? To murder, to lying, you know, what do they convince at Jesus' trial? The, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they convince Others to step up and tell false stories about Jesus, to be false witnesses on his trial. There's another story. Uh, we're not going to put it up on the screen, but I want to, if you have your Bibles, flip over to 1 Kings chapter 21. Because there's another story I want to tell you about this idea of how desire, uh, coveting, leads to further sin. It's a gateway, right? In, in 1 Kings chapter 21, we're told of King Ahab. And, and King Ahab, you know, he's got, he's got a lot. 
He's got a lot. But he looks at his neighbor, and his neighbor's got this vineyard. And the king goes, you know what? I would love to have that as a garden. I want, I want to grow some vegetables. Maybe some tomatoes, cucumbers, I don't know what. But he wants to grow a vegetable garden. And that desire, where that desire leads to, is further lying, murdering, sin, and death. Right? Listen to uh, the first few verses in, in 1 Kings chapter 21. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house and I'll give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. I mean, what a picture of pouting. What a baby, right? But my, my, my point here is that it began with King Ahab's desire for this plot of land. It's like, man, that looks like a beautiful plot of land. I'd love to grow some vegetables there. But what starts as a desire cultivates a bitterness, a jealousy, and anger in his heart. And where the story goes is that uh, um, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, walks in and sees her husband pouting. She goes, what are you doing? You're the king. You can have whatever you want. Don't you worry. Don't you pout anymore. I'll take care of it, right? I'm going to get you that plot of land. And what she does is she concocts a couple of uh, what the, the Bible actually calls these men worthless men who tell false tales, false stories, false testimonies about Naboth. And, and, and what it leads to is Naboth being stoned to death, being killed, all because Ahab wanted this plot of land. Trinity, don't be so naive. Don't be so blind to think that you're wiser, better, or have a more tempered heart than King David or the people in Jerusalem or King Ahab. If anything, these stories should tell us that each and every one of us breaks the 10th commandment at some point in our lives. Each and every one of us is drawn, is almost like magnetically drawn to look beyond what God has provided for us, to look at the world around us and say, man, I would love that. I wish I had that skill. I wish I had those resources. I wish I had this gift that I see in this person. Sin works in you and in I the same way that it worked in King David. A man who, by the way, the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. We're lured away and enticed by our desires, which gives birth to sin, which leads to death. And I mean, as much as we want to listen to our heart's desire and, and, and follow our dreams, left to our own devices, our heart's We'll de our, our heart's desire will only lead us to death and to, to destruction, just as it did for Adam and Eve and King Ahab and King David and blah, 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 blah. You know, the list goes on and on. Unless we learn to surrender 
our hearts to the Lord. Unless we learn to submit our will, our desire, our longings to God, we are at risk of being perpetually led away by these desires. So what are we to do then with these these wild, untamed things that God has given us? What are we to do with, with hearts that the heart wants what the heart wants, right? How are we to handle this? How are we to, how are we to tame these, the, the, these desires which feel like they're beyond our control, they're beyond our logic and reasoning, and yet how are we to control that? How are we to do anything about that? How are we to submit that to God? How are we to prevent being a people who say yes to God with our lips, but really do whatever we decide is right in our own hearts? Well, I think it starts by understanding that the root of coveting in each of these biblical examples is discontentment. David's discontentment with being without Bathsheba, Israel's discontentment with with living under the persecution of the Romans and, and, and wanting a different kind of savior than what God ended up providing, Ahab's discontentment with the land that he already had been given by God, Eve's discontent with, with not knowing good or evil. There is discontent at work in your heart and mind right now. And I think it's important that we, as people, pause and consider where we are discontent. Sometimes that discontentment could lead us to realize that God has more for us, but we've been sitting back and, and, and we are discontent with where we're at because we've not been obedient to follow the Lord, to, to say yes to where he's leading us. But some of that discontentment is there because we've looked at the people around us and we desire what they have. So I hope you can see this. I hope you can pay attention to it. Coveting grows out of a discontent heart. And, and, and if coveting is the fruit of discontentment, then the opposite of coveting is contentment. And contentment is a spiritual fruit worth desiring. How many of us want to wake up and not be anxious about what's in front of us in that day? To be so content with with God at work in our lives that we have no fear of what the day may, may hold because we trust God. We are secure in his hand. We know where he's leading us. How, how many of us would love to not feel anxiety over the, the details of our life and our future? To, to be content to know that the God who loves us, who's redeemed us, who, who's, who's, who calls us his own children through faith in Jesus Christ, will make a way, will provide, will care for us. David's song in Psalm 131, I think, paints a picture for us of what this contentment looks like. Let me, let me read it for us. David writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. Those verses, they teach us the power of humility. Of, of being able to say, Lord, it's my desire to not think too highly of myself, to think of two great things. I don't need to take the world for, for the Lord. 
I need to be content with taking the next two feet in front of me for the Lord. Trusting in him. Not raising my eyes too high. Not occupying myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Trusting that what is there in my life, the things God's provided, the the opportunities God's put before me, the relationships that God has provided, they're there for a purpose and a reason. And so I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. This picture of a, of a weaned child, a contented child in its mother's uh, arms, it, it, I think is the ideal of a trusting and faithful child of God. You may think it's having more knowledge or, or, or more spiritual gift or, or gifting or uh, influence in, in our world, in our, in our community of faith or in our community beyond the walls of this church. I would say that the ideal is contentment through trusting our God as a weaned child with its mother. See, a weaned child doesn't worry about what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear. A weaned child is at rest in the knowledge that its mother will provide just as a trusting child of God is at rest in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows what we need and will provide for us. And so the contented life in the kingdom is the life that God longs for his people. God's ideal for you and me is not not happiness, it's contentment. Contentment in in trusting God. Now I I know, like I, I look out among us and I know that there are circumstances that we are facing or that we have walked through that seem insurmountable or, or just endlessly covered in painful uh, situations and circumstances, right? But can we believe that God will lead us through those things? Can we believe that when God leads us through those things, he's actually doing a work of transformation in us, growing us, maturing us, pouring his love out on us, teaching us more how to be this contented child that David talks about in Psalm 131. This is a a life without worry or anxiety for our current needs or for our future. Why? Because we're trusting God to provide it all. So Trinity, don't covet your neighbor's. Instead, do the opposite. Rest contentedly in God's good and faithful hands. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13, verses 5 to 6, reminds us of why we have every confidence to rest contentedly. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Trinity, the Lord is your helper. You have no reason to fear man or this world because God has promised through Jesus Christ to never leave you nor forsake you. Church, the Lord is your helper. So, So be content with what you have with what he has given you. Let me pray. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you that, that your law is living and active. It's meant to transform us, to shape our hearts and our minds, to, to teach us what it means to be children of God, to be citizens of your kingdom. But Lord, not just showing us the ideal of what that looks like, but, but it trains us up in trusting you more, resting in you more, being content in you more. Guard our hearts, Father, from, from this, this desire for comparison and, and, and wanting what you've given to other people. Teach us the, the secret of contentment, as Paul talks about. And whether we have much or little, teach us the gift of what it means to rest in your arms like a weaned child in its mother's arms. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.